All right, welcome to another episode of Expedition 44. Um, we have a special guest with us today with Ryan and I. This is uh, Greg Boyd. He is a pastor and PhD. He's received his PhD from Princeton, um, a MDiv from Yale, BA in philosophy from University of Minnesota, spent 16 years teaching at Bethel University in St. Paul, um, president of Renew Ministries, that's R-E-K-N-E, EW.org and uh, founder and senior pastor of Woodland Hills Church. Co authored and authored 22 books. Um, some of his um, ones I've read Letters from a Skeptic, uh, Crucifixion of the Warrior God, Cross Vision, and among a bunch of others. So, welcome on, Greg. Uh, really appreciative of you being here. Uh, mind telling us Thanks a little more about Tell us a little more about you. Oh, uh, I'm married to Shelly. I've been married to Shelly uh, for 41 years. I'm 42. We've got three kids and I got six grandkids and a cute little puppy. And we live in St. Paul, Minnesota, where right now it's something like 18 below zero. I, I, you, I'm sure you're not, you're not much warmer over there in Wisconsin. Nope, not really. <laughs> the same time. We're in the polar vortex as well right now. It's been uh, negative digits for the last few days. Yeah, yeah. Gotta love it. It weeds out all the soft people. You know, they always go south. So it's our us rugged mid, Midwesterners that are hanging in there. <laughs> yeah. So, Greg, there's a, a question of the immutability of God. So when we use this term, we say God is unchanging in his character, his will, his covenant promises. Um, and then you kind of, you know, get into the omnipotence and omnipresence and omniscience and all that kind of stuff. And I think most people grow up hearing these things from perhaps a reformed background and maybe basing more of their understanding on that and what they've heard preached and teached over the years than perhaps even what the scripture says. Can you kind of explain basically the immutability of God based on what it means to have an open consideration of the future in God. Uh, yeah, the concept of immutability or impassibilities is another corollary of that. Uh, God, immutability states that God can't change in any respect. Impassibility means that nothing uh, causes him to suffer. He never has a loss. Uh, he never has negative emotions. Um, and, and, and see, here's, here's the thing is that you have two different concepts of immutability, I would argue, uh, one in scripture and the other one in Hellenistic philosophy. In mm -hmm. Hellenistic philosophy, uh, God, the concept of God functioned as sort of the ultimate explanation of the world. Uh, they're looking for the supreme, you know, what would explain the contingent world, what would explain the becoming world, you know, and, and to explain the becoming contingent world, uh, they postulated something that's altogether free of becoming. Uh, and free of contingency, altogether necessary and self-sufficient. And so as an explanation, a philosophical explanation for being, uh, they arrived at, at uh, a reality that must be timeless, changeless, immutable, impassable. Aristotle's unmoved mover, you know, kind of expresses the whole thing. Whereas in the Bible, uh, yeah, Malachi says that God cannot change. Uh, and for Samuel 15 says that God doesn't repent like, a, like a humans do. Um, but in, in the biblical context, that just means it's about God's promises. They're not thinking metaphysics. They're not trying to arrive at an explanation of anything. They're bearing witness to a reality mm -hmm. that has recruited them. And uh, uh, it, so when they use God, they're not trying to, you know, explain becoming contingency or whatever. Uh, they're trying to, they're, they're articulating the relationship they have with this creator of the universe. And so, uh, yeah, in, in scripture, the idea of immutability is synonymous with faithfulness. God's faithful. Won't break his promises, uh, but see that kind of immutability allows for God to interact with human beings and be impacted by human beings, changes his mind as, as things go on. Uh, whereas the philosophical concept of immutability uh, uh, undermines all that. It, you uh, so so a, a lot of the paradoxes or mysteries in theology, in, in classical theology, and it's not just the Reformed tradition; it goes back to Saint Augustine. Uh, the, the paradoxes come because you take a dynamic God. Who's, who was born witness to in scripture, a God that's interactive uh, and affected by us and all of that. Uh, and you fuse on top of that, this philosophical conception of God uh, that is utterly changeless and timeless. And uh, there's no reciprocity there. Uh, 
he's never acted on he only acts on us and it's a unilateral thing and and you try to make them consistent and they can't so they just assert the assert the two and then wash over the whole thing with the word mystery uh some of us would say that it's just more it's just it's an unnecessary coherence because what are we doing trying to find out what god's like from hellenistic philosophy in the first place mm-hmm. yep so give us kind of a outline of what different people believe in regards to let's say a traditional reform view an arminian view molinist and then where you're at okay so you've got uh, several different paradigms for you, you can you, you can it could you could construe it as a debate about foreknowledge or you can construe it as just a debate about reality because all the players in the game acknowledge that god knows everything god is all knowing god is omniscient we all acknowledge that so it's not a disagreement about how perfect god's knowledge is it's a disagreement about what is the nature of the reality that god perfectly knows uh so so you have in the uh reformed tradition uh the the thought that god uh, god knows everything because God determines everything. And so they have no trouble saying God knows the future perfectly because God preordained the future perfectly. And then you have uh, the uh, Molinist group that would say that God knows the future perfectly. God knows what is going to happen, what you're going to do. But God also knows what you would do in every other possible circumstance. And that's what's called God's middle knowledge. And so this is the Molinist view. Uh, then you have the our classical Arminian view which is that God knows what's going to happen, but we are still free. Uh, we, we, we make our decisions and, and all the rest. Um, God doesn't need to know what you do in all of the circumstances. In fact, most would deny that that knowledge is even a thing to exist because you aren't in those circumstances, have not made those decisions, and so there's nothing to base that knowledge on. Uh, then the, the open view would, would turn that same argument on the Arminians. Uh, in the same way that you would argue that the Molinists, there's nothing to base God's counterfactual knowledge on, we would say, what is there to base any, how does God know the future? What is there to know? And so the difference between the open view and, say, the classical Arminian view is that um, uh, whereas the classical Arminian view knows, God knows one future, what will be, and then paradoxically says somehow we're free, um, and, and we decide the future, even though God foreknows what will do an eternity before we ever do it. That's the Arminian view. The open view says, no, to the degree that God has given us free will, to that degree, I mean, I, free will is, I would submit to you, the, the ability to choose this or that. And it really is up to me to choose this or that. And, and so what is real before I choose this or that is that I might choose this or that. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> the final real thing. So God, because God's omniscient and knows all the reality perfectly, uh, God knows that I could choose this or that. Now, here's the thing. And, and so to that degree, the future is open. Uh, to that degree, possibilities are real. And see, the open view is the only view that can say that possibilities are real. And mm -hmm. uh, in, in the Arminian view, uh, we could say the future might be this or that, but only because we're ignorant. We're, we're finite humans. Um, and so what looks like openness is really just epistemic ignorance but uh the open view says no possibilities are part of the furniture of reality if you will mm -hmm. and so when god precisely because god's given us free will and and so in knowing everything as exactly as it is god knows the future partly as of this and partly as of that i'll say one other thing about it and it's very important because a lot of people when they hear this they think oh no uh god you mean god's not in control how can god might be surprised how do you know god's going to win how do you know mm -hmm. yeah, all that but see, here's the thing. If you trust that God is infinitely intelligent, that there's no limit to God's intelligence, uh, you can't you know, divide up infinity, right? Uh, half of infinity is still all infinity. So if God has no limit to God's intelligence, God could anticipate each and every one of a trillion, trillion, trillion possibilities to the trillionth power, each and every one of them as though they were the only possibility. You and I lose anticipatory power uh, to the degree that we have to you know, consider a number of possibilities. I'm far more prepared if I only have to prepare for this or that uh, than I would be if I had to prepare for a hundred of this or a hundred of that. Yeah. But see, for God, God could prepare for a trillion this or a trillion that as effectively as one this or one that. And so if you trust God's intelligence, I, I can say as confidently as any Arminian could say that whatever happens to me, God has anticipated this possibility from the foundation of the world and therefore has a plan in place 
to bring good out of evil. Uh, he, he, what happens to me doesn't happen for a purpose, as though God, you know, causes a tragedy to happen for a purpose. No, but given that a tragedy happened, God can bring a purpose to it because he's infinitely intelligent and has a perfect plan uh, for every contingency. And his plan for every contingency is just as effective as it would be as if he had only one contingency to think about. Uh, so the, there's no providential difference between the Arminian view and the open view, except that the open view holds that God is infinitely smarter than the Arminian view. God's so <laughs> smart. God doesn't need a crystal ball in order to feel secure about the future. Yeah, God's yeah. so smart. And it, it's significant, I think, that in the Bible, God's wisdom is, is, is exalted. His providential wisdom is exalted at least as much as his, po his power. God, God runs the world with wisdom, and you only need wisdom if you need a problem solved, right? You need to be smart. He outsmarts his enemy like he does on the cross. If he's got a crystal ball, he doesn't need to be smart. And if he's just decreeing everything, he doesn't need to be smart. Think about this. Uh, if, if God controls everything, he know, his wisdom is no more relevant than it, the fact that I can, I, I don't need any wisdom to wiggle my finger. It's my innate power. I can just do this. Well, of course, God could just create a world where he's mani mani manipulating everything, um, but it, it would take no wisdom. Or if God just happens to know everything, oh, it's like if, if God's playing me in chess and he's got a, a crystal ball, he knows all the moves I'm going to make, and therefore he's assured of winning. Well, that's not very praiseworthy. That's that's cheating. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> right. <laughs> if, if I'm playing somebody who is assured of beating me because they're super intelligent, that's praiseworthy. But if they just have a occult knowledge of somehow what I'm going to do, uh, well, that, then that, that tells me that, what, what, you're not intelligent enough to beat me on your own power? Or you think of it like this. If Gabriel, the angel Gabriel, were to suppose I'm playing God in chess, and of course God's going to beat me because God's infinitely intelligent and can anticipate every possible move I could ever make. Um, but so the angel Gabriel comes up and, and, and says, hey, God, uh, Yahweh, we... Uh, we, we, we got this crystal ball and we now can see what everything that Greg's, every move Greg's going to make. So here, here you can have this and that way you can be sure of beating him. Uh, I think Yahweh would say, uh, why are you insulting me with this? You know, it, it, I, I, the crystal ball will tell me nothing. I know every possible move with the same assurance that you know the one future with that crystal ball. Only a God who is somewhat ignorant would benefit by virtue of having occult foreknowledge. If God's infinitely intelligent, he doesn't need it. Yeah. And that's all I have to say about that. I, I appreciate the way you framed them and kind of outlined the different views and kind of gives everybody a better idea. This is one of those areas that, you know, a lot of people don't often think about. They just kind of roll back to assuming that God controls all things in every certain way. But that doesn't really fit with the whole lens of the Bible very well and telling us that our calling is to walk as Christians in obedient, allegiant faith. Well, what does that look like if we actually don't make any of those decisions if they've already been made for us? Right, but I right. think I think sometimes people, you know, struggle like you alluded to with, you know, all of a sudden if if there might be some openness to these future choices, both for us and maybe even for God to dynamically be choosing as the chess game of life pervades, then they get worried that maybe God isn't powerful enough to right, right. keep things within a realm of, of goodness or something like that. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, it's, uh, um, it's always a concern for people. Um, but it comes out of, I think, a, a, a lack of confidence. Like we, yeah. there's, a, there's something like we, 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 we trust settled, settled facts more than we trust God. And so we have more confidence that the future is settled somehow. Like, okay, he's got all under control. And, and then that gets, gets fused with his power. Uh, people define God's power as though it was uh, omnicausative. God's power is the power to coerce outcomes. Uh, Paul says, uh, those listening here, Keep an open mind on this. Try to hear this. Because right? <laughs> it's a radical reframe. <clears throat> it's so radical and so beautiful that the majority of Christians haven't found themselves capable of believing it throughout history. It's when Paul says that the cross is foolishness and weakness to the world, but to us who are being saved, it is the wisdom and power of God. The mm -hmm. cross 
is and, and the cross is the very definition of love. First John three sixteen. Here's what yeah. we know: what love is Jesus Christ laid down His life for us, so also we should lay down our life for one another. And Paul says, "This is the power of God." Now that yes. is, what could look more weak than a crucified criminal? You know, when God flexes His omnipotent bicep, it looks like Him allowing people to crucify Him out of love for people. And Jesus says, "When I'm lifted up, I will draw all people unto Me." John 12, 30, 31. Um, so the, the power of God isn't this coercive Arnold Schwarzenegger, Thor sort of power to defeat enemies, to crush opponent, whatever. The power of God, at least the heart of the power of God, according to Paul, is the power to win hearts, to transform mm -hmm. people, you know, to, to, to recruit a, a, a bride out of the humanity that will you know, reign with him forever. Uh, it's, it's the power of his beauty. Uh, and, and of course, God has power to coerce. Um, but it's, it, 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 God ever uses that, he does it out of, as an expression of love, because love defines who God is to the core of God's being. Yeah. God is love, and love looks like Jesus Christ dying on the cross. So, so this is the most, I mean, this is the most radical turning of a conception <laughs> of God, as you can imagine. Uh, throughout history, I mean, one of the ways I know this is inspired, is that no human being would ever make this up. We have a yeah. whole history of religion, uh, to, and we know, we know what happens when human beings conceive of God on our own. Uh, we conceive of God as a giant us. And so since we've always lusted after the power to coerce, to defeat our enemies and to protect ourselves, we project that onto the gods. And so throughout history and yet today, most people think of God's power as the power to get your way, the power to impose your will. Uh, I, I submit to you that if we start our thinking about God with, with, with Jesus Christ crucified as we should, um, then uh, we come to a very, very, very radically different conception of what God's power is. And I think it's much more beautiful, frankly. Yeah. I agree. So when I read the biblical narrative, if I were to pick up this Bible and read it for the first time, I would read how God establishes a theocracy and then his people come along and say, God, we want something else. We want a king. We want to be different. Right. And God kind of says, all right, you know, I'll let you try that, so to speak. And then you kind of get to these stories of the golden calf and things like that. It seems to me like there might be an idea that God has in his mind, but then there's like this kind of, you know, loose dynamic course action of a plan for A, B, C, X, 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 sure. you know, like, I don't know where I am in this plan, but it seems like God regularly changes his mind, maybe even regrets things. What do you think about all that? Yeah, Those yeah. are Calvinists say those are dangerous words and dangerous thoughts to think that way. But I mean, it is the reality of when you just simply open the scripture and read it cover to cover. I mean, that seems to be what it's saying. Sure, sure. Uh, you find that all over the place. Uh, in my book, God of the Possible, I, I outline just all the passages that most people have never even noticed. Because what you yeah. notice or don't notice will depend on what filter you have when you read the Bible. Mm -hmm. uh, and I remember the, the first time it was 1984. When I was reading, uh, I think it was First Kings 20, about Hezekiah, and, and the Lord says, Hezekiah, I'm taking you home. Your, your work is done. And Hezekiah says, no, Lord, I got so much more I got to do. Uh, you know, give me 15 more years. So then the Lord comes back through Isaiah and, and says, all right, I'll give you 15 more years. Uh, and then, then, then Hezekiah goes, I should have asked for 30. Dang. But uh, um, <laughs> I, and I remember thinking to myself, is that true? Is that true? Did the Lord really intend, because it says, I intend to take you home. So did God really intend, or was this some kind of a ruse? Was he just sort of playing, you know? And it struck me that everything in the passage suggests that, that, that it's true. And that got my brain, I was a Calvinist at the time, and I got my brain starting to think, I'm like, whoa, wait a minute, maybe that, you know, maybe I've got a wrong conception here. <laughs> right. But within two years, I had become an open theist, although that yeah. phrase wasn't around. Uh, yeah. I didn't know what I was. I didn't know anyone else that uh, I, I didn't know anyone who believes in the Bible who also held this view. I knew some philosophers who did, but uh, uh, turns out a lot of other people were coming to the same conclusion at the same time. Clark Pennock and John Sanders and and whatnot. Yeah. yeah. So so you have you know the, the reform folks will say, well, that's those are anthropomorphisms. Uh, that's God coming down to our level. And, you know, so so John Calvin says in his commentary on on Samuel that. Uh, when, when, when it looks like God changed his mind, um, he, he says this for our sake. Uh, the truth, of course, is that God, God cannot uh, be changed uh, because everything conforms to his will. 
but for our sake, he, he speaks through anthropomorphisms. Several problems with that. Number one, um, and, and, and Kelvin says it's because we can't conceive of his greatness, so he has to come down to our level. Well, problem number one is if we can't conceive of his greatness, how does John Calvin conceive of his greatness? Yeah. How, how come you can tell us the truth, but God somehow couldn't? He had to right. come down to our level and to talk through anthropomorphisms. The second thing is, 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 uh, um, yeah, even anthropomorphisms must communicate something, right? If, if, it's, mm -hmm. if it's part of the written revelation, it says something, uh, at least analogically. Uh, and so, but what does it say? If God really doesn't change, what does this coming down and communicating through an anthropomorphism saying that I don't change, uh, I'm altogether immutable? Uh, well, that doesn't communicate anything real about God. Right. If, if uh, I change, and that's supposed to somehow be in place of his, I don't change. It, 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 it seems to me that those anthropomorphisms are robbed of their meaning if we mm -hmm. think that they don't correspond to something that's real in God. So yeah. I grant that there's anthropomorphic, in fact, all of our language is anthropomorphic to some yeah. degree. Um, but that doesn't mean that it that God's altogether unlike the answer. Right. It means there's right. got to be a likeness there. So in some sense, God must really be changing his mind. Uh, and why not? I mean, if he, if, if he created a populated the world with free agents who yeah. are always, you know, changing their mind, going this way or that way, sometimes conforming to his will, sometimes going against his will, well, then God would be ultimately. If that's real, then God has to be the most responsive being. Instead of being the unmoved mover, God would be the most moved mover because he's in touch with where we're at every nanosecond, and he adjusts his plans accordingly. Now, the big picture plans he's got in place, and there are things that are not changeable because God set up the world with the structure it has and put parameters around everything. But within the realm of things that are not changeable, there's all sorts of things that are changeable. Yeah. And that's where our say-so, our free will comes in. We get to partner with God. To bring about his, uh, his his will on earth as it is in heaven. God's a relational God. He doesn't want to do it himself. He wants to have partners. And so, uh, we'll do that. I like how you frame that God's a relational God and wants to have partners because when you just simply break down the story of the Bible, and unfortunately, I don't think a lot of people go back to the real basics of what the Bible is. It's a story where he creates man to partner with man and woman together. And then the story gets mucked up and it's a narrative of how he's going to bring that Eden story back so that we are walking with him, partnering with him, right, right. working with him, rolling over with him. What kind of a relationship is that if it's one-sided? If we're just, if everything has been played out before us, it, it stops to actually even be a relationship by our terms. Well, it seems to me that if God is pulling all the strings, then everything I'm saying right now is what he ordained to have happen uh, or, or ordained me to say. If I scratch my nose right now, that was predestined. Uh, well, then I'm not really an agent at all. If God's doing everything, right. I'm just sort of a, this, this manifestation of God's will. That's all I am. Uh, if there's no reciprocity, yeah, we don't have any impact on God, then there's no relationship. A, 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 a monopoly is not a relationship. It's a monopoly. And, and so, I look at this as like when you're getting married, if I was going to marry a couple and I stood in front of them and said to the man, you're marrying this woman and now you get absolutely no say in anything. Everything has been completely made up from this day on. How many people would continue those marriage vows? Yeah, it's, it doesn't sound very fun. No, <laughs> I, I, I think in the core of our being, we, are, we, are, we have significance because we have say so. Yeah. We have a domain. I have say so over a certain domain of creation, you know, my, my, my family and other people. And that's why my, whatever you can influence is part of your say so. And that's your kingdom, the dome over which you are king or queen. Uh, and our job is to bring our domain under God's domain so that now his his kingdom is our, our kingdom is subsumed under his kingdom. It's all, and, and, and his will is now being done on earth as it is in heaven. But that gives a that's what gives our life significance and purpose. We add something. We, we, we bring value to things yeah. that otherwise wouldn't be there. Uh, we're not just automatons going through this. You know, in, in the theological tradition, there's this debate between synergist and monergist. Mm -hmm. Monergist, the word mono means singular, one. And, and ergos is the, the Greek word. Uh, and it literally means energy uh, or work. Um, it, it's it's, it's, it's uh, uh, your ability to make a change. Well, see... And synergos, the word sin is alongside of, S-Y-N. And so it's coming alongside of one's energy. 
Well, Paul tells us in Romans 8, 28, that in all things, God is working with us for the better, uh, uh, for those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose, to bring redemptive value out of everything. Because he's anticipated it, he's got a plan for it. So whatever happens, God's at work uh, to bring good out of it and turn to his advantage. And our job is to work with him. And he uses the word synergeo there, synergos, um, uh, which I think should settle the debate. Uh, we bring our ergos alongside God's ergos mm -hmm. so that God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that gives our life eternal significance. Uh, we're not just going through a pro forma activity. This is real. We really make decisions. We, 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 to some degree, the future, what happens in the future will be, uh, is up to us. Uh, we partner with God and he gives us that say so. Now, this might be new to you, but being that you work with college students, I bet you've heard it before. If you've ever followed the Marvel movies, like the Doctor Strange view of everything, you kind of see them say, like, they might see how the future plays out, and they've looked at it three or four times, but, you know, sometimes they can't change it. Where this sounds like you're talking about Perhaps God sees all the options, but sometimes, and he's the one that has set all those, the way this works in course from the very beginning, but right. sometimes he might step in in a miracle and actually choose to exercise more omniscience or omnipowerfulness to come in and slightly change the course. What do you think of that kind of thinking? Well, I would be careful with it because it can easily sound like sort of a quasi-deist sort of conception yeah. of God where God's up there and like, oh, I guess I need, to, you know, I need to tweak this. And now he's kind of meddling with us, you know? Yep. I, I think God is always involved. Paul tells us in Acts 17 that from the, since Adam and Eve, all throughout history, God has been working through the rising and falling of kingdoms uh, to get people to search for him and grow up for him and possibly even find him, Paul says, though he's not far from any of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. So that tells me that God has been at work in every human heart since day one to try to get them to hunger for, for him and to whatever degree the culture would allow it to find him. Yeah. Uh, this is a God who's always active. I think he's active right now here, always yeah. working for the good and to minimize the evil. And our job is to partner with God in doing that. Uh, sometimes I think circumstances allows for for uh, God for things is aligned so that God can uh, uh, have more exercise, more kind of unilateral influence in some circumstances yeah. more than others. Um, but that's not God going up there saying, "Any, any, mighty mo, I'm going to heal you. I'm not going to heal you." And over right. no, I think God's always working for the maximal good, and it, it's, it's circumstances and it's people's hearts that allow for His good influence to sometimes break through and other times to thwart His will breaking through. Okay. Um that kind of opened up a stream to maybe objections of open theism, I right guess. Up. And, you know, there's, there's a, there's a few of them, but Matt and I are both partial preterists. And I think the majority of our, uh, our viewers understand what that means, but it, it's kind of a conception that most things that were kind of foretold in the scripture have already happened. And when you start thinking that way, a lot of people said, you know, get worried that like, well, what if God has already changed his mind on this whole thing? What if, you know, he's gone through this circular process of everybody saying, no, this, you know, Israel didn't work out. He gave him into judgment into the exile. He sent his son who was crucified on the cross, arguably by those who he was sent to save. And, you know, then you get into, you know, the 70 AD and the full preterists would say, you know, maybe Jesus even came back. And, you know, when I'm reading the scriptures, it looks like, he should have come back in 70 AD. Why didn't he, you know? What do you do with thoughts like that? Is is Jesus actually, is revelation still current towards the end? Are we still looking for those things to happen? You know, how do we know that God hasn't completely just forgotten about us, so to speak, <laughs> if you're going to be open to that? Sure, 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 sure. Uh, yes, yeah, it brings us to what I was adding the most important consideration any human being could ever make i think it's the most important fact about your life is what is your conception of god uh anyone who is worrying about god having abandoned us has a conception <laughs> of god that's not entirely based on jesus and not i encourage healthy, you to know <laughs> base your conception of god on jesus and more specifically on, on, on the crucified christ because 
that I argue is is where the New Testament places it. Uh, that it, it's the, re the reason Paul could say that the cross is the power of God is because he believes that the cross reveals God. It's the fullest revelation. And so in John, the cross is held up as the hour of Jesus Jesus glorification when he glorifies the Father. So this is the point where you know, all of his life revealed God in some ways, but it's most clearly revealed on the cross. So that tells us that God's very essence is self-sacrificial love. And love is in fickle. Jesus says, I will never leave you or forsake you. And so for us, what it means to have faith is we trust in that. So we ask you, know, could God have forsaken us and just abandoned this whole show? I'd say, uh, I, you froze on me a little bit there. I probably froze on you. Uh, but uh, it, it, that Jesus is telling you the truth. It comes down to having a confidence in the character of God. That's, I think, the, the most important thing to know about eschatology is that um, uh, God's faithful and God's made promises and he'll come through it. The glory that God's in store for us is, can't be compared to the sufferings of this present world. That's a good enough. That's all the eschatology I need to know. Now, if you want to get into the details of, you know, stuff, uh, what happened in 70 AD, um, here, I, I, I find N.T. Wright to be the most informative author out there, yeah. where he, mm -hmm. and he's a specialist on apocalyptic language and concepts, whatever. Mm -hmm. And his argument is that, in a sense, Jesus did return in 70 AD. Now, full preterists would say, in the full sense of the word, he returned, and that's the fulfillment of the kingdom, uh, and I can't go there. But I right. do think that in 70 AD, uh, that's when we had a complete dispensational change. And, and, and so N.T. Wright argues in The Victory of God and, and other books, that when the authors speak about, you know, the sun will turn or will go dark and the moon will turn to blood and the stars will fall from the sky and, and it, you know, be wars and rumors of wars and all that stuff. There, it, it looks like it's the time of the end of the world. It's because they, in a sense, they're saying the world as you know it is coming to an end. It's like when we would say it's raining cats and dogs or whatever. There are expressions that, that are, no one in the first century would take literally. Um, and you can see that because these expressions are used at different times throughout the biblical narrative. When, when, when Peter gets up to preach on the day of Pentecost, uh, he, he, he says, this is that, this outpouring of the Spirit, is that is the fulfilling of what was promised. Um, and as part of what was promised, it talks about the, the sun going dark and the, uh, uh, the you know, moon going turning red. None of that literally happened on the day of Pentecost. But, <laughs> but what he's saying is this is a cataclysmic change. Yeah. The world as you know it has been, is coming to an end. Uh, I, there's a new, a new sheriff in town. And so they use that. Apocalypse. It wasn't meant literally. So throughout the Bible, we see that there are these times where it just looks very dynamic, but then there's other times where we get this idea that it almost looks like things are, the course was set from the beginning. Like Jesus seems to know that Judas was going to be betray him. And then we kind of read in the book of Acts that the cross was predestined. So it seems like some things God has kind of set the course that he knows we're going to get there, but then other things are just kind of left more open. So how, how does that work? I mean, as God, you know, you kind of alluded to the words picking and choosing and to be careful with that kind of thinking, but I think that's when somebody's considering this view, these are the kind of questions that are, are kind of wondering, sure. how does that work? Well, I'll give you a general answer, then I'll speak specifically of Judas and, and, and of the crucifixion. The big picture answer I'd give is this. Of course, I mean, any kind of reality that God's going to create has to have a structure to it. Yeah. You can't create a, a totally indeterminate world. You have to have, in fact, you have to, in order to have agents that are able to have some say-so over you know, a realm of things, most of reality has to be determined. Right. For me to be an agent who can make choices, I, I can't be an agent that has to choose everything about myself. Mm -hmm. just, that, it's like a chicken-egg thing. There's, I have to have a self to be able to choose. And so most of uh, I didn't choose where I was born, when I was born, who raised me, my basic personality, my gender, my eye color, whatever. <laughs> I most things I don't choose. But far from arguing against freedom, that is what allows me to have the ability to choose. I can only choose what, what airline I want to fly on because I, I can assume that money is still going to have value. Uh, the, the law of gravity is still going to operate. Physics is going to operate the way it still does. I'll wake up tomorrow basically the same person I am today. 99.9% .9 of the future, I don't have to choose. And that's what allows me to choose the 0.1% that I get to choose. Um, so, yeah, there's structure. And, and, and if, if, if uh, I, I sometimes use the analogy of a choose-your-own-adventure book. 
Um, you know, where uh, the author writes out you know, kind of a storyline and then it comes to a point where you get to choose how the story should unfold. Yeah. You know, should buy the dog or not. And so then you go to the certain page if you think she should buy. And now a new storyline picks up and then you come to another choice. Well, the, the author of that Choose Your Own Adventure lays out the structure of all your options. But within those options, you have free will. I think that's a very good analogy for how God uh, it runs in providence. Some things are structured. Some things are pre-settled. Maybe a lot of things are pre-settled. But uh, not everything's pre-settled. And that's, that's all you need for an open view, uh, is that the future is not exhaustively settled. Uh, when you look at you know, particular issues like, uh, let's say, uh, in Acts 4.23, when it says that Jesus was crucified according to the foreknowledge of God. Um, you see, that, for one thing, he doesn't say they're eternal foreknowledge, but it doesn't bother me if it is eternal foreknowledge. <laughs> it means that God, God knew ahead of time that I'm going to have to die for these humans. Uh, and then God waits, you know, Paul says that at the right time, God sent his son into the world. So God's got this plan, and at the right time, when circumstances are right, which implies that it's not pre-settled, uh, he'll, he'll carry out that plan. And note in, in Acts 4.23, and that's also true in Acts 2.23, uh, where it, it, what, what was preordained was the crucifixion. It doesn't say that the people who crucified Jesus were the ones who were preordained to do it. Mm -hmm. They did what was preordained. So the action, the, the outcome was preordained, but they, they had choices whether they're going to be the ones to carry that out or not. Yeah. Uh, right. And it's not difficult to show like how an omniscient God would be able to carry that out. Right. Um, you know, you just uh, statistically speaking, individual humans are hard to predict, but group behavior is not right that's how insurance companies make all their money so god of course knows that given this group of people at this time jesus will for sure get crucified who does it yeah that's up to them oh so so there's i, I think that shows that there is a structure but there's freedom within the structure the outcome is certain but the means by which the outcome is brought about is left open to people um with regard to judas uh there's nothing that says that he was preordained to to betray jesus uh, that all is based on, in, in, in John 13, Jesus says that uh, uh, all those you gave me, I have lost none, except the one who is. Now, some translations have predestined to uh, uh, hell or predestined to perdition um, or just destined to perdition. But the, the actual Greek has the phrase son of perdition. And son of perdition Son of was just a, a Jewish concept of one who's fit for, given who you are, um, uh, this is the destiny that is, is, is fit for you. You are destined for perdition, at least as you are right now. Mm -hmm. And uh, nothing to say that he was perditioned or that he was predestined for uh, perdition or destined to it a, a year ago or three years right. ago. Uh, it means just right now you've made yourself into a character that is fit for destruction. Uh, oh, and, and even yeah. that, I don't think... Changed as well, but I, I think when 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 Judas was coming, Judas had the possibility of being a good disciple. He didn't have to go the way he went, uh, right. but at some point, I think he, as he sees Jesus' power at work, he's thinking, "I can cash in on this." And uh, greed gets the better of him, and we all know where that ended. <laughs> That's good. Thank you for expounding on that a little bit. Um, so. I don't want to monopolize your time. You're a busy guy. You got books to write and podcasts to do and everything else. But there, there's one more issue I'd like you to kind of speak to, and that is the problem of evil. And so I, you hear this a lot. People have, I think there's two hangups they have with what they think Christianity is. One, they can't come to terms with ECT, uh, a loving God that would essentially torment, torture children forever. And you've spoke a lot on that before and i think that people will find that but that's a little outside of this conversation although still connected in a way but there's also the idea of how can a loving god just allow all these terrible things to happen and you know i i go back and i look at the story of you know the canaanites which is often equated similarly how can god say annihilate everybody you know but i frame that as it was you know, a terribly evil place. And you have people saying, how can God have, you know, let this evil go? But then we get a picture of him saying, it's judgment day. I'm not going to let it go. I'm going to annihilate it. And then you have the same people kind of having a problem with how can God, you know, 
be a God of such violence in the Old Testament. All of this plays into our conversation of, of the openness uh, of God. What, what, do you, what do you do with that whole picture? Well, you, uh, you start by saying, I know you're busy, so I'll just wrap it up here. And then you ask me a question <laughs> that takes five hours to even begin to answer. It's like, you got time for another podcast? <laughs> with regard to the Old Testament violence and stuff, I'll just say this, that um, I, I have two books I've written on this. Uh, the popular version is Cross Vision. Uh, the academic version is called Crucifixion of the Warrior God where I take on this portrait of God saying, slaughter them all, leave nothing yeah. alive, whatever. And, and the main point I just argue there is that if we really believe that Jesus is the full revelation of God, that yeah. more specifically, the, the crucifixion of Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God, what God's like. Uh, and then what God's always been like. And, and if we really believe that all scripture is inspired to bring us to point to Jesus, as Jesus himself tells us, it's all about me, then we should interpret it all as being about him. And is leading to him. And when we do that, I submit to you, we find a very different, uh, those portraits reveal something very different about God than what they do on their surface. You know, I'll just put it like that. Mm -hmm. little, okay. Little, little teaser. So uh, and, and, and the more general question of the problem would be, well, I'll just say this, that, see, if I, uh, if I, let's say that uh, if I, uh, oh, I want to use a different analogy here, but uh, Scott, I'm, I'm thinking of a Scott Peck analogy that came out of uh, People of Light. He talked about a, these parents who were evil and they knew their son had suicidal impulses and they gave him a gun for Christmas on his 15th Christmas and the kid shot himself. Um, well, see, it, it, it's one thing if, if you buy your kid a gun because, uh, and I would never do this because I'm a pacifist, but it's the analogy that, only analogy that came to my mind. But uh, say you want to go out hunting with your son, you give him the, you give him a gun, okay? Now, you know he's got free will, and if he goes down the wrong path, he could use that gun for nefarious purposes. That There is that possibility, and there's a risk you take. But if you're a healthy father, the healthy son, you think, well, it's worth it. I'll give my son a gun. We can go out hunting if you want to do hunting. No, I don't eat meat either, so why am I using this analogy? Um, <laughs> well, see, there's a world of difference between giving someone a gift, knowing that there's a risk involved, but the risk is worth it, and giving them a gift when you know it's going to go south. In the classical Arminian view, the problem is that God gives Hitler free will, knowing full well what he's going to do with it. And that seems to make God culpable for it. Uh, in giving any of us free will, God knows we possibly could go in a wrong direction, but we also could go in the right direction. And the only reason we can... The only reason the right direction can be love is because we have to choose it. And that means the very, uh, the very possibility of us choosing love means that there's a possibility of us choosing the opposite of love. So there's an inherent risk, um, but God's not responsible for that because that is up to us because the outcome isn't, isn't pre-settled in, in any sense of the word. The, the last thing I'll say about it is this, that people say, well, why God, didn't God intervene to stop this then? Okay. He gives Hitler free will. He sees how this is going. It's going to go south. Millions of people are going to die. Why didn't God, you know, intervene and stop that? Um, the answer I would give is this. If God gives me, or let's say I'm Hitler, God gives Hitler the free will uh, to choose yes or no. And the stakes are pretty high in this case uh, because at where he is in history and what's happening and all the things that, you know, are coagulating here. Uh, but I hold what's called the principle of proportionality, where it's just the greater degree you have for good is also balanced by the degree to which you can do, do evil. You know, a very smart person can do more good than average, but also more evil than average. Mm -hmm. And so here Hitler is at this crucial time in history, and perhaps it's because he could have done so much good and the German people could have turned and whatever, but instead he uses his influence and power to go in this other direction. And of course, there's it wouldn't have happened if there hadn't been a million people helping him and going along with it and looking the other way and all that, that other mm -hmm. stuff. Um, but see, if God were to intervene and stop things, God gives Hitler to go this way to this degree or that way to that degree. And he's hoping he'll go this way, but he could go that way. Well, he, Hitler starts to go that way. He gets kicked out of art school. He realizes what a loser he is. And so his, his ego's hurt. And so now he's going to compensate. Um, well, if God were to intervene and stop that at that point, then it's false that God gave him the ability to go this way or the ability to go that way. You see, uh, if God gives a person the ability to go this way to this degree or that way to that degree, then God has to allow the person to go that way to that degree. 
Otherwise, it's false. Then he gave him the ability to go this way to that one degree or, or, or the other. You see, so free will, I would argue, is inherently irrevocable. And once yeah. you accept that, you can now understand how you can say God can't do something without limiting his power. God can't revoke free will once he's given it to the degree that he's given it. Um, it, it, by definition, he can't do that. God can't do that for the same reason he can't make a married bachelor or make two adjacent mountains without a valley in between them. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's built in the definition of things. So that I think is, I, I can now hold that God is always doing the best that God can do. God is always doing the most that can be done given the kind of world that he created. Uh, and that means he's got to allow people to carry out their free will, uh, even when it's going to lead to disastrous results. He can he, 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 he can try to raise up other people to intervene and do all sorts of stuff. And here's where our partnering with God becomes very important in fighting the problem of evil. But God can't just unilaterally come down and turn a person into a robot once he's promised the person or given the person the ability to be a person. If that makes sense. That's, that's a pretty good summary of two books in five minutes. So thank you for being yeah. willing to do that. I think a lot of people would have just said, ah, I'm not, I'm not sure I can do that in five. So yeah. that's, that's a good approach. Um. We started out this Thanks. conversation kind of identifying, you know, everybody that is open to this kind of dynamic way of thinking. So unfortunately, that is not the reformed camp. They're kind of over there. But then, like you pointed out, to an extent, the Arminians, the Molinists, and then those with the totally open view, such as yourself, they're all open to some working of the dynamicness of God. And right, right. when I look at that within the scripture, there's a lot of beauty for that kind of thinking. It opens up a lot of love, I say, within the scripture. So to me, as a theology guy, I like how it connects the Old Testament to the New Testament. A lot of people want to, like you alluded to, say, this is the God of the Old Testament. This is the Jesus of the New Testament and act like they don't fit. But I see this kind of more dynamic view showing how it connects the whole lens of scripture. So to me, that's that's the big part of it. But there's so much more to it than that. What do you view as kind of maybe your favorite part of it or the or the most beautiful uh, element? Uh, it, it's the incarnation and crucifixion. Uh, the, the word in my mind, the classical view of God, which holds that God is above, above time uh, and above change and above having negative emotions, uh, pure actuality, actus purus, devoid of potentiality, uh, as, those, as though those were good things. I mean, that, that's <laughs> like, like, why is that praiseworthy? Uh, right. you're, you're frozen in timelessness. See, I can understand why Plato held that what is perfect is timeless I, and why the Greeks, they, you know. The, the realm of the perfect was the realm of the timeless because they were thinking of an ultimate explanation of mm -hmm. the world. And, and the highest uh, kind of knowledge for them was math, mathematics, yeah. and numbers aren't changing. And so I can see why they would say it, but why would anyone who believes that ultimate reality is not numbers or the forms, but rather uh, ultimate reality is a person, uh, a, a personal being? See, to be a personal being means that you're relational, you're interactive, uh, there's reciprocity, you, and, and that totally reframes your idea of perfect. Uh, so it's, it, it says that the word was made flesh, uh, John 1.14. Well, that tells me that the word wasn't always flesh. Uh, it, there was a change there. The word was pre-incarnate, and then the word became incarnate. And so far as I can see in scripture, that left a permanent change in God. Mm -hmm. God now forever... Uh, the, the word now forever has a human body and the scars are still there. Uh, so God's got, got scars. The, that's all just change. And it's because God was willing to change and become a human being and then enter into our sin, take our sin upon himself and then take on our curse uh, and suffer all that out of love for us to free us from the enemy and to free us from our sin. That's, I think, the most beautiful thing in the world. Um, <laughs> the, if you think about it, what reveals God to us on Calvary, you know, if you look at it on the surface, it's, it's hideous, it's ugly. That doesn't reveal the beauty of God. It reveals the beauty of a crucified criminal. Yep. But what, what's beautiful about it is that we, by faith, know the message of the cross, as Paul calls it. That it was God, the creator God, who, who spoke everything in existence and holds everything in existence every nanosecond. That God became this human being and became our sin and became our curse. So it's the degree to, it, it reveals God because 
he crossed an infinite distance. He couldn't have gone, he couldn't have gave up more than he gave. Uh, in becoming our sin, the all holy God becomes the antithesis of, our, of himself. So he, it's, he couldn't have gone any further than he went. And it's the distance that he went, the unsurpassable distance that he stooped out of love for us that reveals to us who have faith the perfection of his love. Mm. Uh, he, he, he ascribes unsurpassable worth to us at, by, by virtue of the fact that he pays an unsurpassable price. And that reveals the unsurpassable beauty of the love that God is. Uh, and so it's his willingness to change that is, I think, the most beautiful thing in the world. Uh, uh, and I think all of that is just a massive refutation of the classical view of God being timeless and, and, and all yeah. the rest. Yeah. Beautiful. I love that. Yeah. Greg, thank you for joining us on the show today. We really appreciate it. We are, uh, uh, I'll even say, big fans of your work. We've read a good deal of your books, watched, watched a lot of videos. I really appreciate how Thanks. open you are to all these conversations. I feel like nice out of fun. all the people talking theology, you're really, you, you come from a very unbiased perspective. You're open to exploring kind of any questions, you know, that some people think dangerous or just have very canned answers for and expect people to get it. But I really enjoy how you encourage people to really think through everything, to look at, you know, the overall picture, to get into their Bible, to study everything in context and walk mm. away with what really makes sense. I, I appreciate that. I, I'm sure I am biased. We all have our biases. So <laughs> I, I appreciate the compliment, but I don't know how true it is. But <laughs> because I, I, you know, if traditional answers or the, the accepted answers don't work, uh, I, I, I just can't accept them. I, I'm, I, my, my head has to give my heart permission to believe. And so yeah. something has to make a modicum of sense to me before I can say, okay, I'll buy that. And, and then I just find that there's other people who are having the same problems. Like, you know, that man never made sense to me either. Uh, that's why the, my ministry is called Renew. It's like, like rethink everything you thought you knew. Let's yeah. take a new first perspective on things. So, so th thanks for saying that. I appreciate it. Yeah, Keep great. up your good work, you guys. And Matt, thanks. sorry that you were kind of cut out of this conversation because of technical difficulties. Yeah, hey, that's uh, fine. Yeah, and if you guys want to uh, catch up more with Greg Boyd, hey, visit his website, uh, R-E-K-N-E-W.org. Um, also check out, I love listening to your sermons. I keep up to date with Woodland them. Hills Church. Yep, yeah, Woodland Hills Church, uh, St. Paul, Minnesota. So thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Thanks, Greg, for coming on. God bless Hasta you. Hasta la vista.